This is the Stories from 1916 podcast. Using first-hand accounts and archive material, we tell the less well-known stories of ordinary men and women who did extraordinary things during Ireland's revolutionary period. A small national school in Clonakilty, West Cork, produced three students who went on to fight in the Easter Rising in Dublin. Sean Hurley was perhaps the only Corkman to die in the rebellion. Michael Collins would go on to become de facto leader of the emerging Irish state. The third was Cornelius, or Con O'Donovan. Con O'Donovan was an agricultural student at the time of the Easter Rising. A member of the IRB and Irish Volunteers, F Company 1st Battalion, he was also a keen hurler. In his witness statement, he discusses his part in the build-up to and events of the Easter Rising. During the week before the Rising, he was given the task of watching the movements of soldiers and policemen coming and going at Dublin Castle. Such a job was quite new to me, and the strain of endeavouring to move innocently in Dame Street around that gate was worse than being actually in the fight the following week. And then, what was I to report as unusual movement? At any rate, nothing unusual occurred as far as I could see. Soldiers and police passed in and out singly and in pairs, but there was no bustle. And when I found some of these observing me, I began to feel guilty, moved round the corner and walked on a bit among the usual groups of passers-by. I felt that was an ordeal that day. On Saturday night, the night before the planned rising, O'Donovan delivered a dispatch to James Connolly in Liberty Hall at around midnight. Given the timing, this message is likely to have been about the order from Owen McNeil countermanding Sunday's planned action, if not news of the order itself. The door was barred and an armed guard admitted and led me right up to Connolly, where we lay on a mattress in a fairly large room among perhaps 30 of his men all lying down for the night, each with his rifle beside him. Coming away that night and often since, I asked myself, what impulse urges these men to fight? Certainly not the hope that they will get anything out of it. What have they to fight for? A country, yes. But how much of it? A room or two in a tenement? That is perhaps the truest patriotism. Easter Monday came with mobilisation orders and O'Donovan passed the message around the houses of various volunteers. I can never forget the way in which the news was received in different houses. But what disappointed me most was the number of volunteers on my list that I found had gone off to fairy house races or somewhere else for the bank holiday. Some of these joined up on Tuesday and later during the week. All credit to them, for they certainly knew they were going into a battle. Then I got into my uniform and proceeded to Blackhall Street, carrying full kit, including the piece of candle, needle and thread which were included in the list of articles each volunteer was to have in his kit for the Sunday manoeuvres. I think a small piece of dry stick for fire lighting was also included. I carried a short Lee-Enfield rifle, two revolvers and ammunition for all three, as well as the reserve of the Holt rifle contained in a brief bag. It weighed, I would say, between three and four stones, and I was thoroughly sick of it before I was halfway to Blackhall Street and wondering when I would meet a volunteer less heavily laden who could relieve me even for a while. A little further on, I did meet one. F Company occupied the forecourts. Apart from an assault on a British ammunition convoy on the North Keys, the day passed without much incident. O'Donovan was on duty guarding a side gate overnight. 
A bunch of about six horses tied loosely together were manoeuvred quite close to our gate once or twice that night. We knew there was a man somewhere in the midst of them and suspected that man was a British soldier, but we could not see him and would not risk shooting a horse to get him. Innocent soldiers we were, surely. That soldier was one of the party that had turned into Charles Street when our men opened fire too soon on Monday. They were a nuisance there, but apparently our officers were satisfied that we were not strong enough in numbers to attempt dislodging them. It was plain to us later that the one among the horses was scouting our gate. In the confines of the forecourt stronghold the following day, tensions mounted as the men awaited the British response. One poor fellow who was certainly very unfitted for soldiering, even of the mild kind that we were experiencing up to Thursday, became so unbalanced from the strain that I had to get him down to the ground floor with a request that he be kept there and not given a rifle again. A sign hanging outside Keegan's gun shop, making a peculiar sound as it swayed in the wind, became for him an armoured car on which he wanted to fire but could not steady himself sufficiently to do so. After that, I got his rifle from him and manoeuvred him to the kitchen. We were really suffering from the strain of looking for a soldier to fire at, and I remember, well, the callous and, shall I say, brutal pleasure I felt when I picked off one who was crossing the Grattan Bridge, although he dodged from side to side and kept his head low most of the time. Later, a comrade spotted another soldier. He walked out of Charles Street in full kit. Our man at the window saw him and asked me what would he do. Well, what could we do? Here was a soldier armed and probably looking for a chance to fire on us. One bullet did it. And then the marksman raised his hat and said, He's dead or dying now anyhow. May the Lord have mercy on him. While they weren't engaged from the street by soldiers, they did come under intermittent sniper fire for an extended period of time. Several bullets entered the rooms we occupied and presumably a number lodged in the leather-bound volumes with which we had most of the windows barricaded. One of these bullets passed through the wooden casing of my rifle just in front of the first finger on my left hand without injuring either the finger or the barrel of the rifle. Where that bullet was fired from we could only guess but it certainly came from a sniper who had got our range was not too far away and who was probably provided with field glasses which aided them in sighting our window. Eventually, the strong British response they had been awaiting arrived. I think it was on the Thursday we were shelled. One man was with me at the windows on the lower of the two floors we occupied, while two others were similarly posted on the floor above. The big gun appeared on the south side of the Liffey, in that inset on the quay close to St. Michael and John's Church. We kept peppering away at the gunners whenever one of them showed himself, but as we did not get much of a chance of taking deliberate aim, I I cannot say that we hurt any of them. Uh, Perhaps we did. Then came a shattering explosion, and the room trembled. We had not enough sense or military training to then retreat, but kept on having a shot at the gunners. Soon the second shell entered our room through the window at which we were not. Why they put it through that window in preference of the one at which two of us were stationed, which was nearer to them and to the corner of the building, I could not explain. For more than a minute after the shell burst in the room, I think we did not realise whether we were dead or alive. 
I remember distinctly, while the room was full of dust, smoke and falling ceiling, hearing the voice of a comrade from the floor above calling my name and asking, were we dead or alive down there? The humour of that question aroused me and I then realised that my comrade and myself were uninjured. I called to the man above to come down quickly and follow me as I realised that the next shell would probably enter the room that they were in, directly above us. We made our way to the ground floor where we found our comrades praying for us as dead. This was the last large-scale combat experienced by F Company in their garrison during the Rising. We had noticed a decided waning off in the sounds of rifle shots that afternoon. It was quite easy for us to distinguish between the report of the Hoth rifle and that of its smaller brother, the Lee Enfield. We all knew that the supply of the ammunition for the Hoth was very limited and wondered how long it would hold out. But that rifle made a cheery sound for us, for we knew that it was not being used by the English. Conor Donovan was tried and sentenced to death for his part in the Easter Rising. However, this was commuted to penal servitude and he was released in June 1917. He went on to participate in the War of Independence, but not in the Civil War, having perhaps seen enough fighting. He joined the civil service and led a quiet life in Glasnevin until he died in 1965. For other less well-known stories from this interesting period in Irish history, visit www.storiesfrom1916.com Thanks for listening.